0: you're listening to on human rights where we bring you interviews from experts around the world we highlight the latest and most interesting trends and bring you information on human rights and international humanitarian law my name is christina jayer of ekstrom and we are broadcasting from the Raoul wallenberg institute in lund sweden today we are speaking to richard bennett who is a visiting researcher and a special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in afghanistan and we are talking about the current human rights situation in Afghanistan. Thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoy
1: this podcast.
0: Richard Bennett, very nice having you in the studio today at the Royal Wallenberg Institute.
1: My pleasure to join you. Thank you for inviting me, Christina.
0: Thank you. And it's also very uh, nice to have you here as a visiting researcher and a special rapporteur on the human rights situation in Afghanistan. Or do you say... Human rights. How do you say that, by the That's way? That's
1: pretty much right. The official <laughs> language is a Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Afghanistan. Ah. My,
0: yeah. And uh, so you are that since?
1: Since 1st of May last year.
0: All right, so it's pretty recent, but still it's been prolonged uh, or extended, as I see as I uh,
1: Yes, it was extended for another year in uh, October, so I'll, uh, I'll certainly be... Uh, in the role till October this year and then after that we will see um, the rules in the Human Rights Council allow for a special rapporteur to serve for a maximum of six years. Mm. So I'm in year two now.
0: But so before we start talking about what it means to be a special rapporteur, would you like to share a little bit about yourself and how you came to have this position that you have right now?
1: Sure. Well, I'm from New Zealand and um, I started working in the National Institution a long time ago, actually soon after I graduated from University. Um, I joined the New Zealand Human Rights Commission so that's how I got into human rights work and after a number of years there in different roles in, including initially as a, as an investigator and later as a, as a researcher and head of the research team there I, I got even much more interested in working abroad and, and the Commission gave me few opportunities to do that. And then I decided uh, that I would like to work for the UN. So I went in the year 2000 to uh, Sierra Leone. Um, And then I moved around uh, different conflict countries. Why conflict countries? I'm not sure, Um, because a national institution doesn't necessarily lead to that. But uh, after Sierra Leone was uh, uh, Timor-Leste, then Afghanistan, then Nepal. Uh, then I worked on Sri Lanka and then I went to South Sudan and then I went back to Afghanistan. And in the middle of all that, I also spent three years working for Amnesty International um, in London, but covering uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia and the Pacific.
0: Yes, well, that I was going to ask you actually how you how you ended up working in this Uh, This field with human rights in conflict areas.
1: It was accident. I I got posted to Sierra Leone in the middle of a conflict. Actually, um, plugged into a peacekeeping mission as the human rights officer. I was one of my responsibilities was to help um, establish a truth and reconciliation commission for the country, so that. I got thrown in the deep end on transitional justice but it was a great learning experience and I was also involved in helping establish a National Human Rights Commission as well while I was there so that was kind of how I got into it and yeah uh, pretty much ever since I've worked in countries that have been um, involved or emerging from conflict.
0: Mm -hmm. And now you're a special rapporteur.
1: Yeah I mean that's uh, because I, I, um, I retired as a staff member in 2019 and I worked for a while as a consultant uh, in Myanmar and, and in Afghanistan mainly, and uh, I did some work in New York too. And then I'd, I'd really retained a very strong interest in Afghanistan and commitment to Afghanistan. I first went there in 2003 and I've been going back since then with some breaks, but I lived in the country for five or six years. Uh, in total. And when things started uh, going downhill, this was before the Taliban took over, um, I was involved there again advising the national uh, institution. And after the Taliban takeover and the possibility of uh, a special rapporteur was raised and then adopted in the, uh, appointed in the in the Human Rights Council, which was in October 21, um, I applied for the post. And uh, as I said, uh, was, uh, I was, I'm managed to be appointed to it.
0: Mm. But what does it take to be a Special Rapporteur?
1: Well, what is a Special Rapporteur? The the UN has uh, a, through the Human Rights Council, has a a process of special, what they call special procedures. Um, Special procedures are either uh, rapporteurs or working groups, and they are independent experts. So we are appointed directly by the Human Rights Council. And we report back to the Human Rights Council and we are independent of the rest of the human rights system. So I don't report to the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, nor to the Secretary General. I report to the member states. So it's a different kind um, of process and there are two types of special rapporteurs. There are country rapporteurs and I'm Afghanistan and there are thematic rapporteurs. For example, there's a rapporteur for violence against women or there's a rapporteur for on education and health and so on. So there's a total of around uh, 50 uh, different uh, rapporteurs or, or working groups.
0: Mm-hmm. But so yeah, you were in Afghanistan. You are working on Afghanistan right now and you've been there a couple of times. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the history, recent history of Afghanistan? Sure.
1: I mean, I've been there a lot. Uh, but as a rapporteur, I've been there twice, mm. uh, in May and October last year, and I'm hoping to go again before too long. Um, recent history, well, Afghanistan's uh, conflict began following the Soviet occupation in 78. And it's had different phases of conflict ever since then. Uh, Probably the government that has uh, lasted the longest has been the Republic, which was established in 2001 after the 9-11 attack uh, on the US and and the the hosting of Al-Qaeda by the Taliban in Afghanistan, which resulted in the US attacking the Taliban, uh, driving them out, and they were replaced by an interim government led by Hamid Karzai to start with after something called the Bonn Conference, uh, and then later there were elections, uh, and there, have, there were two presidents over a 20-year, almost 20-year period. It was firstly Karzai until 2014, and then from 14 until the Taliban uh, got back in. Took over again in in August twenty one. It was um, Ashraf Ghani. The Taliban, of course, are are uh, uh, is a deja vu. They also swept the country uh, militarily using violence and took over into in in nineteen ninety six, and they were in power for five years until two thousand and one. And many people will know um, about the the way the draconian way in which they governed the country then, um, especially. In regards to a treatment of women, and according to them, as a pure Islamic emirates and a, and a governing according to their version of Sharia law and Afghan traditions. So, even before that, I won't go into it much, but there were were different conflicts and and very serious human rights violations throughout. So it isn't as if there was. A, a relatively stable country without too many violations, and then the Taliban came. It's been a, continu- a continuous conflict with a lot of violence, even before the Taliban, and uh, very serious human rights violations. And I would mention that, that while the Taliban are perhaps the most extreme, um, some of the other governments, and I'm not talking particularly about the, the recent republic, um, have also had pretty extreme views. Um, on issues such as girls' education, which is a very hot topic. Mm. So when the Taliban uh, took over, um, there, a bit before that there was in in uh, there were some talks between the Taliban and and, and the U.S., which resulted in February twenty twenty actually twenty twenty, in uh, what's known as the Doha Agreement. Um, some people call it a peace agreement. Other people call it a withdrawal agreement. But mm. but but essentially it meant. Uh, that um, over time the U.S. would withdraw its uh, troops from Afghanistan. They had been downsized already and and so had NATO downsized. But in return, there were promises not to harbor terrorists in Afghanistan, such as Al-Qaeda or Daesh, nor to harm uh, U.S. personnel or its allies. I would you know, I think it's very important to mention that this agreement was between the US and the Taliban. Mm. It did not involve others and the then government, the Republic of Afghan, Islamic Republic of Afghanistan was not involved in the talks or in directly in the talks or in that uh, agreement. It led then to some uh, uh, peace talks um, in Doha that went on for months. Uh, without making very much progress, and there was very little involvement of women. The Republic side uh, did have uh, some women on its team, the Taliban didn't have any women, and they really faltered uh, by the end of 2020, early 2021, and uh, the Taliban had already been occupying probably half of the territory for many years, for several years, and uh, um, there was a A period of of violence especially in the cities including Kabul I was there for part of the time a lot of attacks on civilian infrastructure uh, especially minorities but others as well and um, then it was felt that it was pretty inevitable that the Taliban would get back into power in some uh, shape or form however it was also thought that there may be some kind of agreement and it might be a power-sharing agreement Um, but no instead Early August, the Taliban uh, began to take the major cities, the provincial capitals, and they moved into Kabul on the fifteenth of August. Mm. Um, I should mention that it was expected there would be a fight over Kabul, mm. but there wasn't a fight. No. Um, in the end, uh, um, were, you, were
0: you also surprised, as many others, that they could take over so swiftly?
1: Yes. Um, I think most people were surprised that it, would, it would, would, was as swift as it was, just a matter of a couple of weeks really, mm. uh, between the, the fall of the first province and the last province. I mean there's been different analysis since then mm. um, about why that happened, but the fact is that it did happen and that the, uh, the leadership of the Republic, in, including President Ghani, um, fled the country and so the Taliban uh, captured the whole country Particularly Kabul, um, without a fight,
0: mm. and that was a surprise to many that there was actually
1: uh, uh, yeah, as it was a surprise to many, and some people thought, well, perhaps there's uh, you know a silver lining to this mm, because mm. at least uh, there was less violence and 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 civilians uh, weren't harmed as much as as expected, and it was hoped that perhaps the Taliban uh, 201, uh, the second version, um, might be a reformed Taliban. And and there were certain um, statements made uh, by the leadership uh, regarding issues such as uh, treatment of women and education of girls and women and and, uh, amnesty for those who were associated with the previous government, um, made uh, a number of uh, actors, uh, international actors, particularly hopeful that perhaps this would be a different version. But over time, that has not proven to be the case and increasingly especially in the last six months six to eight months or so the uh, taliban um, have really been cracking down and uh, uh, it appears moving step by step um, to the very draconian the very tough regime that they had in in the 1990s Mm.
0: Yes, so for the for the rights situation, you would say that one could have hoped or expected things to uh, improve a little bit, but instead, now looking back since the Taliban takeover on the 15th of August 2021, it has rather deteriorated, mm. or what's mm. your.
1: It's certainly deteriorated since August 2021. Um, I think there was hope by some but there were mixed feelings. many in the international community were somewhat hopeful. the taliban I, I need to mention have not been recognized officially by any countries and not by the un and uh, it was hoped that they may govern the country in a way that that could lead to recognition by some particularly in the international community and there were some afghans too but many afghans particularly uh, said from the beginning they didn't believe that the Taliban had reformed, and that they they uh, did not want to to recognize uh, the Taliban at all. I mean, it is a reality that they're in power, but to recognize them officially and legally is a different uh, a different issue. Mm.
0: But they're still hoping to be recognized. Yeah. That's something that they want.
1: Yeah, the Taliban are seeking uh, recognition, and they believe that they deserve it and uh, uh, for example that they have achieved a number of much progress that that means that they should be recognized for example that they they claim they have uh, increased security that they have stamped out corruption that they have dealt with many narcotics problems uh, for ex- to give uh, a few examples and um, I think their, their claims are both for recognition but also for boosting the economy, because the Afghan economy was, was rather dependent, 75% dependent on international aid. And on top of the aid being cut, um, also banking system was frozen. And Afghan, Afghanistan's assets held abroad in the U.S. At, at that time were also frozen. So this has been another platform on which the Taliban have been advocating not only political and legal recognition um, but also creation of an even playing field so that they can govern and run the economy according to normal international rules. Mm.
0: Do you agree that they sort of merit some sort of recognition judging from what they have or say they have achieved?
1: Um, I think there's a large gap between what the Taliban say and and what they do. And human rights comes to to, uh, the forefront in this. Certainly the situation for women and girls has been really serious. They have uh, removed almost all um, the rights of women and girls and they, I think, are possibly the only regime which states quite blatantly that they don't accept the equality of women and men. Having said that, there are different positions... Uh, by different uh, Taliban leaders. I, I probably don't have time here to go into the different factions, but yeah. um, uh, but the reality is that those in power have not only uh, uh, shut the girls' uh, schools for secondary school, uh, they've now done the same with universities for, for women, and they prevented women working for NGOs, and there are many other restrictions regarding maharam male chaperone to move around uh, uh, to do with uh, uh, attire in terms of hijab and so on so the many many restrictions on women but also um, I would also challenge their their, uh, proclamations around a general amnesty and that there would not be revenge killings we are getting some very worrying reports about uh, people disappearances, killings, torture of people associated with the security forces or even with the judiciary in in terms of prosecutors or or civil society in the previous times. And they've really clamped down on any dissent. They will not accept any dissent or uh, criticism. Uh, The media has been uh, muzzled it used to be pretty free media. Now, in 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 relative terms in the region, now it's very restricted, and the space for civil society has shrunk a, a great deal. So, to come back to your question, um, should there be some kind of recognition? I think this is a really um, a really a uh, big question. Uh, what I would say is that complete isolation is not the answer, in my opinion, because it's the Afghan people that will suffer if there is complete. Um, I- isolation. Uh, on the other hand, the, I feel that they need to do a lot more before they are formally recognised in the ways that we've discussed. And that raises the question, I think, of humanitarian aid, you know, where people are literally starving, what do you do? And I think the humanitarian community is uh, grappling with this now. Uh, my suggestion to them is is not to forget human rights and to look very closely at the nexus between human rights and humanitarian aid, um, and not to forget that r- human rights are economic, social, and cultural rights as well as civil, civil, and political rights, and that includes the right to, to to food and adequate shelter and water and health and education and so on. So, mm. um, I would uh, advocate for a more rights-based approach, mm. um, but also. Uh, to do no harm, but to, to take measures that ensure that the beneficiaries of uh, support are not the Taliban, but are the people in need.
0: Mm. I understand. But yes, so there are many issues to address, naturally. As you say, it's a draconian rule that is uh, prevailing in, in Afghanistan currently. But what are you hoping to achieve and what are you going to address?
1: Yeah, so my role is, uh, it's kind of twofold, uh, really. On, on one hand, my I'm required to make ongoing assessments of the human rights situation and to report on that to the Human Rights Council and to the General Assembly. So I uh, am someone who uh, uh, listens and uh, analyzes um, uh, what is happening from a human rights perspective and, and reports to the international community um, on that. Um, there's also a quasi-investigation role because um, a part of the mandate um, requires me to, the languages is, um, seek, receive, um, examine and act on reports of human rights violations. And also later it was added to document and preserve information about human rights violations. I'm also asked to support and advise civil society and to assist with the implementation of Afaga- Afghanistan's international human rights treaty obligations. And all of this with a, a gender perspective, a child rights perspective and a survivor-centered approach. So that's that's the, the, uh, the mandate. It's... Um, It's a very broad one and and possibly broader than most uh, special rapporteurs. And for that reason, the Human Rights Council requested that my mandate be supported by uh, dedicated staff from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the budget has been provided for that through the General Assembly. So I am supported by a team in, in Geneva to do this work. So it's, and that is, is, is uh, uh, a bit more support than most rapporteurs get, which means that sometimes it's be called, been called a special rapporteur plus role, mm. and sometimes it's been seen as a kind of halfway to a commission of inquiry. One of the things, though, that has been regarded as important has been access. And as you mentioned, I've been able to make two visits to Afghanistan and I continue to have a dialogue with with all the stakeholders. So the access issue is regarded as as very significant. And uh, keeping the balance between being a a critic, and I am a critic, in the sense of reporting against human rights standards, and engagement is part of the role. Mm.
0: And what is the engagement part? When you actually, you're, what does it look like when you are well I think
1: uh, you know engagement with the um, Mm. with with many stakeholders is important Mm. starting with the people of Afghanistan and Mm. I do a lot of Mm. um, whether or not I'm in Afghanistan and when I am in Afghanistan I Mm. have met with many Afghan uh, members of civil society Uh, when I'm out of Afghanistan I've done the same online Uh, but I also have the chance to engage with the what the UN calls the de facto authorities, the Taliban uh, in power, so I have had the opportunity to have meetings with, uh, with quite a few of the uh, ministers of the cabinet of the Taliban and I've been able to travel around the country a fair bit, uh, not only to Kabul, I've been to, to mazar sharif to Kandahar, to Bamiyan and to Panjshir uh, province as well. Mm. I
0: asked you once before when we talked uh, what it is like, how do you prepare for such a meeting? Because I can imagine in a situation where you're with Taliban and you know that they have certain ideas about certain things and you want to make progress. How do you prepare and what, do you, what is important during such
1: a meeting? I think that perhaps it comes back to a more general point about what is human rights advocacy in such a situation. I think listening is really important because uh, everyone has a perspective. But also it's important to continue to emphasise the human rights principles and the commitments that the state has made um, under the uh, human rights treaties that it's ratified, and it has ratified seven of the major treaties. Um, so, And it's the, the, the de facto authorities have acknowledged that as well. So I think it's important to use international human rights law as the basis for discussions and to continue to advocate for the implementation of that law, whether it's gender equality or fair trial standards or um, fair treatment of detainees and raft of issues.
0: Well, thank you so much, Richard, for sharing all these interesting uh, perspectives. Is there anything I've forgotten to ask you about? Yeah,
1: I mean, just that it's uh, fantastic to be able to to have a base here in mm. in uh, Rovaniemi, the Institute, because mm. um, uh, you know I mentioned that rapporteurs, special rapporteurs are not are not uh, staff members, so we don't get an office anywhere, and we don't get paid. No. And um, I know that. So mm. it's uh, it's really very supportive and helpful to be part of the Raoul Wallenberg Institute. And uh, it's really great that RWI has an Afghanistan program, which has a number of elements. We had a really uh, interesting round table last week with, with many people coming to Lund. And we also uh, this year have four research fellows, all of them who are working um, on their projects at Raoul Wallenberg. And also um, I am uh, able to, to work with and uh, support them and, and hope that they can also support me So uh, this is a a terrific arrangement, in my opinion, and a great opportunity. And I hope it's a win-win for Sweden and Afghanistan, Ralf Wallenberg Institute and all of the Afghans who are here.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me.
0: That was Richard Bennett, visiting researcher at the Ralf Wallenberg Institute and special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Afghanistan. This has been the podcast on human rights. For more information and the latest updates on Ralf Wallenberg's Institute's work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening.